Fantastic. It's great to have you here. Just remembering the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us. And we're just going to read a little bit of Mark's memoirs or his account of Jesus' crucifixion. And it's quite a scene. So we might pick it up from Mark 15 in verse 25. My translation, the NIV, says it was the third hour, um, which is actually nine o'clock in our time. Jesus was crucified around nine o'clock on Friday morning. So it was about nine o'clock or the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and the other on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saves others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we might see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, which is midday in our, in our time system, at midday darkness came over the whole land until 6 p.m., uh, 3 p.m., which is the ninth hour. So from midday till 3, it was dark around Israel and where Jesus was crucified. At the ninth hour, he lets out a light cry, saying, and that's, you can see there in your translation, it's in Aramaic, Jesus actually cries out in Aramaic, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting a psalm. Verse 35, When some of those standing near this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. That's another prophet from the Old Testament. One man filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down or comes and takes him down, they said. But with a loud cry, verse 37, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard this cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. It's an interesting verse, that last one, verse 39. It caught my attention. I've been reading a whole lot around the crucifixion, and I know Resurrection Sunday's coming. Uh, this is only the, you know, sort of part one of the story. But it caught my attention that Mark, as an author, who was, knew Peter very well, had heard Peter preach and tell his story, his own personal story, of denying Jesus, following Jesus, hearing Jesus teach Mark is like an assistant or an associate with Peter. And so Mark writes this down and we have this one unusual piece of information at the moment Jesus dies that a Roman centurion declares he is the son of God. Most unusual. Romans weren't interested in Jewish affairs. They weren't looking for a Messiah. They had no idea of prophecies about a son of David coming and dying on the cross for the sins of humanity. In fact, the Romans didn't care. 
What's interesting is when you look at the way Mark puts the story together is it's not the Jewish people that declare who he is, son of God. It's not even the women, the, the, you know, you had Mary, his mother, you have a whole group of women, you have John there, the disciple, you have a whole lot of people sort of standing off away from the crucifixion, just far enough that they're not part of the crowd that's mocking him. They don't even declare he's the son of God. It's actually a Gentile pagan warmonger. It's unbelievable. In fact, what's even more astounding, he's the guy in charge of crucifying and flogging Jesus. He's not just a soldier. Mark tells us he's the centurion. He's in charge. He's got a hundred men under his control as a Roman officer. He's not young. You can't be a centurion in your teenage years. He's worked his way up the ranks as a Roman officer. He understands Roman culture. He's probably been to various battles. He's certainly seen his emperor, his king, his son of God, Caesar, in Rome. That's a phrase that they used to use for their own ruler, son of God. And so here we have this pagan who had many gods to worship. He could choose, you know, in the Roman culture, there were myriads of gods that you could actually bow down and worship. There were gods for virility, gods for having children. There were gods for sending rain. There were gods for having a good crop and harvest. There were gods for health. There were, there, you could choose many. There were many temples and altars that a Roman centurion could choose to worship at. And yet he's the one, he's the first one that physically declares, the first human that declares at the moment Jesus died who he was. Surely this man is the son of God. It's incredible. When you, when you, you know, it's easy to pass over that little one, one verse, verse 39 of chapter 15, but the confession of who Jesus is comes from a Gentile and someone who, well, he knows cruelty. He, he, he's interested in punishment. Normally, he wouldn't care about someone being flogged, beaten, spat upon. He would not respond to this. He's not an emotional person looking for a saviour or looking for redemption. He's totally clueless that that's actually the plan of God and he's part of that plan. But what is fascinating is Mark tells us why he declares that Jesus is the Son of God. Have a look at the verse again. Mark says, he hears Jesus cry out and saw the way he died. Mark tells us very clearly what got this man's attention who knows war, brutality, he knows power, he knows authority, he certainly knows what a king should look like, what an emperor should look like, what a god should look like. His culture's full of them. In fact, in his culture, not only does he have a myriad of choices of different gods to worship who could do various acts for them, there were actually humans in the Roman culture and in the Greek culture that called themselves the children of God. They nominated themselves because they had supernatural powers. And you can read some of those stories in the book of Acts. They went around doing supernatural things we know from demonic powers but other people call themselves the children of God in this man's culture. 
What struck me as I'm reading this is what the Roman centurion who confesses and declares that Jesus is the Son of God, what he never saw Jesus do. Think about this. He never saw Jesus calm the storm. He never saw Jesus walk on water. He never saw Jesus turn water into wine. He never saw Jesus open the eyes of the blind man. He never saw Jesus raise the girl from the dead. He never heard Jesus preach the good news. He wasn't at the Sermon of the Mount where Jesus talks about all the sort of attitudes that should drive us who worship God in how we live. He never heard that sermon about being poor in spirit. He never saw Jesus in any other context. He's just put in charge by Pilate to flog him and crucify him. He doesn't know the Jesus that we read about before we get to this part in Mark's Gospel. And yet, how is it that he never saw all the other stuff that we know from the four Gospels that Jesus taught and did? The fact that Jesus could even drive a demon out of a human being. He never saw that. The only thing he saw is how Jesus died. And in fact, Mark actually tells us that he's actually standing right at the foot of the cross. You know, the crowds are a little bit of a distance away, mocking. Even the, the Sanhedrin, the teachers of the law, who actually convinced Pilate to crucify Jesus. They're mocking. People walking past are calling out to the cross for Jesus to come down to save himself. They, they sort of use his own words against him around that the temple will be restored, uh, sorry, um, torn down, but his body will rise again referring to himself in three days. Jesus' own, the few disciples, mainly women, by the way, the boys, they took off. The only one we definitely know was there out of, the, out of the 11 disciples left is John. And we know that because Jesus tells John to take care of his mother. And he tells his mother that John is now her son. But the other guys aren't there. But the Roman centurion, he's not off in the distance with Jesus' followers. He's not standing with the mockers. It actually says, again, Mark tells us, he's actually standing, stood there in front of Jesus. Look at the text. He's standing, he's watching. Something has captivated his attention about how Jesus dies. And this is how Jesus dies, which I think is in, in total stark contrast to what a Roman soldier in charge of, a, a, you know, a hundred men under his power and authority, is a, it's a total contrast of what he thinks is power, kingship, authority, dominance. You know, to a Roman mind, who of course, you could, you could ride for months on horseback in those ancient days and never cover all of the Roman Empire. That's how big it was. This man understood that they had taken Jerusalem by force a couple of hundred years earlier. He understood what it was to be a Roman citizen. They were proud, mighty. They understood about power and authority. But in terms of control, dictatorship, brutality, violence, aggression, that was what a king or a Caesar would look like. And yet here we have Jesus on the cross in total contrast to what he thought a king would look like or should look like. He'd seen Caesar dressed up in his 
golden breastplate as they would the, the soldiers would mass past the palace and yell out their praise to Caesar. They even worshipped Caesar as the son of God. It's, it's actually a Roman phrase as well as a Jewish phrase. The Romans thought that their king, their Caesar, was God's son incarnated. They worshipped their ruler as the son of God. And yet when he's standing there, he's the, one so, he's the closest one to the crucifixion. And as Jesus cries out and breathes his last breath, he is seeing not a Caesar who, you know, not a king who's in control through brute force and violence. He sees that God's love is actually what is on that cross. That's what he saw. A Gentile man not even looking. And he, he, look, here's the thing that, that you know, I, I understand from the way Mark includes the centurion's comment is it shows that God was always going to include everybody in his kingdom. Jesus is not just dying for his chosen people, the Israelites. He's, that centurion gets converted at the cross in total opposition to him worshipping his own Caesar as the Son of God. He says, surely this man is the Son of God. Not Caesar. And yet, when you, when you look at the images of crucifixion, the awful brutality that included the suffering that Jesus went through, even beforehand with the, the flogging, the beating, as well as them being nailed on a cross... What sort of God is that? I mean, where's the power and strength in that image for a Roman centurion? It's not there. But it's the way Jesus died. How did Jesus die? Now, it's not talking about the literal, you know, asphyxiation that takes place when, you know, all your body weight is on your arms and you sink down, you can't breathe properly. It's not the loss of blood through the flogging. That's not what Mark is referring to here. What Mark is telling us is, well, Jesus never cursed. Certainly other, again, this Roman centurion's probably crucified many other people. This is not the first gig that he's had in terms of killing someone on a cross. He knows what he's doing. But he's never seen a man die like this. Not curse. What did he hear actually Jesus say? There are like seven statements that Jesus makes while he's on the cross. Some of them are, Father, forgive them. I don't know what they're doing. He's never heard someone say that before who's been crucified. He's never heard someone on the cross say to his mother, here's a man that's going to look after you. His name's John. He's never heard that before. He's never seen someone die with such compassion and mercy that he is overwhelmed and is the first person on the planet after the crucifixion, to declare that's God's son. Surely that is God's son. People don't die that way. And yet he's a man of brutality. I'm going to bring this to a close. Can I have the worship team up? I'm going to show you one, one interesting thing around, you know, we're talking about what seems to be the ending was the beginning. Let's go back to the beginning of Mark's gospel. So if you've got your Bibles there, Turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. 
And you'll hear these words, which, well, they sound very similar to Mark 15, 39. This is how Mark starts his account of the gospel story. This is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right at the opening statement of Mark's gospel, we have Mark telling us, this is what you're about to read. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. He's the Son of God. And this is like bookends to, to Mark's writings. As he brings his, his gospel account to a close, which really starts with the crucifixion and then completes with the resurrection in the next chapter, what we actually have a bookends to Mark's story here, that he's connecting the beginning and the ending together. This is the Son of God at the start. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who's the Son of God. And then we have this Roman centurion who actually is in charge of the crucifixion, declaring surely this man is the Son of God. And if you read Mark's gospel from start to finish, you could not help but see that. In fact, over eight times, Mark includes, he's sort of like threaded or woven through his gospel story, this idea of Jesus being God's Son. Some of the other times it's mentioned is at the baptism of Jesus, where the voice from heaven, when God says, this is my Son, whom I'm well pleased. The other time it gets mentioned, which is, this, you know, this is a little bit unusual in our Western world, in the way we think, the demons who he cast out actually recognise him as the Holy One of God. What do you want with us, Holy One of God? Is their question to him as he's about to cast them out. So this is a theme throughout Mark. Now what's interesting is, of course, you've got two sort of key titles. You've got Messiah for Jesus, which is this Jewish idea of the one that would come, who was anointed. That's really what the word means, the anointed one of God. But then we have this phrase, Son of God. And it is used in the Old Testament. It's actually used for Israel. Israel, the whole nation, is referred to as the Son of God. It's often referred sometimes to a few of their kings. It's used a few times. Angels are sometimes called the Son of God in the Old Testament. But here's the difference between Messiah and Son of God in terms of like a, a title or a reference to Jesus. Son of God is an intimate term. It actually means this one is as closely related and connected to God as you can get. Not just anointed, he actually is from God. I mean, to use our language, he is God. He's the Son of God. That's what the Roman centurion saw as Jesus died. A man of brutality, power, war. Done this before, but it's the way Jesus died that he can't help but cry out, even in front of his own men, surely, this man is the Son of God. Why don't you close your eyes as I bring this to a conclusion this morning. Anyone who looks at the cross and reads the accounts of the death of Jesus can see. This is what Mark wants us to see. That Jesus is not just a good man. He's not a great teacher. He's much more than that. He actually is from God, dying on our behalf. Mark wants the world to know that anyone who reads his account can see that Christ on the cross is the Son of God. 
It looks like he's dying in obscurity, humiliation. It looks like he's weak, he's being crucified. And yet what we actually do see like the Roman centurion is God's love for us, that he would not only spare his son, but give his own son that we would be included in his family today. The centurion saw it, God's son on the cross, God's son choosing to endure all that punishment and pain, not retaliating, praying for forgiveness, laying down his life. The centurion knew that surely Jesus was the son of God. And you can know that today. I'm gonna finish by praying, but just keep your eyes closed. If, If you wanna make a decision to follow Jesus today, this is the day to do it. If you don't know Jesus as the Son of God, we've got some material we can give you free of charge. There's going to be no pressure, no obligation. But as I close today, why don't you just join me in praying to God and asking God to reveal His Son to you because He will do that. He's done it for me. He's done it for many of the people who are in our church community. That's why we gathered this morning on Good Friday to remember the death of our Saviour. So Father, we just stop to say thank you for your death on the cross. Your son Jesus actually gave us new life, life forevermore. You filled us with your Holy Spirit. And Lord God, as that Roman centurion watching your son dying, the way he died was the revelation that changed his mind. And Father, we pray that as that man cried out on that day, that we also cry out, surely you, Jesus, are the Son of God. And Lord, may we worship you in not just words, but from our heart, how we live. As we walk into Resurrection Sunday in two days' time, may we encounter the full power and presence of the living God who rose again and rules over all of creation, sustains all of life. Amen.